Welcome to The Screwball Story, the podcast that explores movies from one of classical Hollywood's most beloved genres, screwball comedy. I'm your host, Olympia Kiriakou, and each week I'll be taking you on a deep dive into one screwball classic. episode, we'll be exploring the other foundational screwball comedy, 20th Century. Like It Happened One Night, it was produced by Columbia Pictures in 1934. It was directed by Howard Hawks and stars John Barrymore, Carol Lombard, Walter Connolly, and Roscoe Carnes. The 20th century centers on the tempestuous relationship of theatrical producer Oscar Jaffe and his protege, ingenue turned movie star Lily Garland. Oscar cultivates Lily's career, transforming her from a meek neophyte named Mildred Plotka to a Broadway superstar. Oscar and Lily quickly become New York's hottest couple, but as Lily gains confidence and ego to match Oscar's, she realizes that she can no longer tolerate his mercurial temperament, and she decides to head west to Hollywood. Oscar's career plummets after Lily's departure, and after a failed preview of his latest theatrical production in Chicago, he skips town. Aboard the 20th Century Limited back to New York, Oscar unexpectedly bumps into Lily, and opportunity strikes. In an attempt to bolster his floundering career and to gain funding for his next theatrical production, he devises a plan to lure Lily into signing another contract with him. Like its subject matter, 20th century's origins are rooted in the theater. It's a story so fantastic that it could rival some of Hollywood's most tense dramas. In the spring of 1930, playwright, actor, and model Charles Bruce Milholland penned The Napoleon of Broadway, about a megalomaniac theatrical producer based on his experience working as Broadway impresario David Belasco's agent. Milholland brought his story to producer Jed Harris, who saw promise especially the lead character, but felt it was missing some dimension. Harris convinced Milholland to let Ben Hecht and Charles MacArthur, the celebrated writing team behind Broadway's hit 1928 production, The Front Page, flesh it out. Over the next month, Hecht and MacArthur worked on Milholland's play, adding punchier dialogue and rewriting the basic plot. They presented Harris with the first two acts of their script, and he loved what he saw. But it was still missing the third act. Not long after, Heck traveled to Hollywood where, by chance, he met Hollywood producer Sam Goldwyn. Never one to pass up an opportunity, Hecht pitched his and MacArthur's script to Goldwyn. He loved it. Back in New York, Jed Harris was growing impatient. Hecht and MacArthur had promised a complete script to him by mid-August 1930. It was now December 1931. He headed west to Hollywood to confront Hecht and MacArthur about producing the final act. They wouldn't see him so he sued them for $5,000 advance he gave them as a breach of contract. Meanwhile, back in New York, producers George Abbott and Philip Dunning secured the option for Milholland's original play, 
The only problem? Milholland's existing contract with Harris stipulated that only Hector and Garther, not Milholland, could work on rewrites. Abbott and Dunning came up with a solution. Abbott agreed to produce one of Hecht's plays called The Great Magoo, on the condition that Hecht write the third act for 20th century. Hecht agreed and completed 20th century without MacArthur. 20th century premiered at the Broadhurst Theater on December 22, 1932, starring Moffat Johnson as Oscar, Eugenie Leontovich as Lily, and William Frawley as Oscar's assistant, Owen O'Malley. It went on to play for 152 performances and received great critical acclaim. According to Howard Hawks, he was the one who convinced Columbia Pictures head Harry Cohen to produce 20th Century in late 1933. Weeks earlier, he had parted ways with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer after production issues on the Mexican revolutionary drama Viva Villa, starring Wallace Beery. Allegedly, MGM studio boss Louis Mayer became dissatisfied with Hawks' slow work pace while on location in Mexico. At the time, it was reported that Hawks left the production on his own accord, but recent research has shown that he was fired, and that he and Mayer even got into a physical altercation. Writer John Lee Mayen says it was over the shooting pace, but Hawks insists it was because Mayer demanded he fire actor Lee Tracy. With the sting of the MGM experience still fresh in his mind, Hawks was looking for a new project. Hawks told historian Joseph McBride that Cohen assured him, and I quote, any time that I wanted to make a picture, to just come in and tell him what it was, and I could start on it. 20th Century was on Hawks' radar, and he turned to his friend Gregory Ratoff for advice. Ratoff's wife, Eugenie Leontovich, played Lily Garland on Broadway, and he convinced Hawks that for added tension, in the opening act, the famed theatrical diva should begin as an unknown. Hawks proposed the project to Cohen, who agreed. Cohen reassured Hawks that it could be made cheaply and that he could pitch the lead role to John Barrymore. Hawks agreed and took a significantly reduced salary of $25,000. Hawks collaborated on the screenplay with Hecht and MacArthur. They also enlisted the help of theatrical producer Billy Rose, who Hawks called the world's champion shorthand writer for additional dialogue. Of their collaborative style, Hawks explained, we just talked dialogue and Billy wrote it down and a girl sat up all night and copied it. The scriptwriters also altered the narrative structure, adding a much-needed prologue to enrich Oscar and Lily's possessive romance and their respective egos. According to Hawks, they completed a first draft in five days. As I mentioned in the previous episode, Columbia was then known as one of the minor Hollywood studios, an establishment on what was pejoratively called Poverty Row. They did not have a roster of star talent like some of the others in town. Instead, Harry Cohen would negotiate loan-out deals with the other studios to secure talent for their projects. For 20th Century, Columbia signed a three-way deal with MGM and Paramount, where they received Clark Gable and John Barrymore from MGM, and Claudette Colbert and Lombard from Paramount. When it came time to sign Barrymore, Hawks appealed to his ego, but he didn't have to sell the role too hard. Emphasizing Oscar's theatricality, Hawks recalls, and I quote, I called him. I told him I had a story and said I wanted to see him at his house. So I went up and he asked, Mr. Hawks, just why do you think I would be good in this picture? Hawks replied, 
It's the story of the greatest ham in the world, and God knows you'd fit that. Barrymore accepted immediately, Huck says without even reading the script, and later admitted that it was the best role of his career. Casting the perfect Lily Garland was a bit more complicated. Both Hawks and Cohen initially thought to offer the role to an established Broadway actress, someone along the lines of an Ina Clare or Tallulah Bankhead. They both turned Cohen down. Next, they asked various Hollywood actresses, including Ruth Chatterton, Constance Bennett, and Miriam Hopkins. Again, they all said no. As Hawks tells it, he was the one who suggested his second cousin, the then unproven comedic actress Carol Lombard. In a 1977 interview with Hans Christoph Blumenberg, he explained his decision. So I needed an actress and I couldn't get one to play with, uh, with Barrymore in the 20th century. And I thought of Carol and I told the head of the studio, I'd like to use Carol Lombard. And he said, oh my God, you can get somebody better than that. And I said, okay, get somebody better. So he came in in a week and he said, I made a deal to get Carol Lombard. With no other prospects in sight, Cohen agreed. In 1932, he also had worked with Lombard on her first studio loan project, the pre-code romantic melodrama, Virtue. Cohen had a notorious reputation for his vulgar mouth and autocratic leadership style. Ben Hecht even gave him the nickname White Fang. When Lombard reported to Cohen's office on the first day of shooting for Virtue, he allegedly said to her, your hair's too white, you look like a whore. Lombard, who learned to swear like a sailor from her two older brothers as a defense mechanism, retorted, I'm sure you know what a whore looks like if anyone does. Cohen was disarmed by her spunk. From that point on, Lombard remained one of his pet favorites. The 20th Century went into production on February 22, 1934, and was completed almost entirely in sequence in just three weeks. According to Hawks, Barrymore missed a day of shooting due to his drinking, but was apologetic and told Hawks he'd give him two days for free to make up for it. Barrymore was also helpful in adding depth to the scenes that took place backstage. Hawks recalled, I'd never been backstage in my life. When we came to those scenes, I told Barrymore, now look, you know eight times as much about this as I do. You stage it. And he did. Carol Lombard shines in her role, matching Barrymore's full-bodied hysterics and feigned affectations to a T. But by all accounts, it took a lot of effort to get her ready for the shoot. There's a common misconception that Lombard was a so-called natural screwball comedian because she spent her formative years under the tutelage of slapstick producer Max Sennett. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. In 1927, Lombard was hired as one of Senate's bathing beauties, and apart from a handful of her films, most of her silent comedy roles are of the coquettish variety. After leaving Senate's on play in 1929, she eventually landed a contract with Paramount in 1930. Glamorous escapism was a trend at Paramount in the early 30s, and seeing as Lombard was a relatively blank slate, the studio decided to repeat the success that they had had with Kay Francis and Marlena Dietrich and mold her into their latest high fashion glamour girl. For the next four years, she was cast in films like No More Orchids, No One Man, and Sinners in the Sun that play up her sophisticated, albeit superficial, persona. 
Lombard's glamour girl image came at the expense of her acting skills, and Paramount's mismanagement was ultimately her gain. It was only through strategic loan-out deals like the one with Columbia that she was able to blossom into a screwball star. But going into 20th century, there was virtually no indication that Lombard could rise to the challenge to match Barrymore's effortless, ostentatious flair. Twentieth century is dialogue heavy, so Hawks meticulously planned everything out ahead of time in extensive rehearsals. He later observed that the film's high-pressure atmosphere was entirely dependent on the dialogue unfolding exactly like an actual conversation, complete with overlapping lines and interruptions, something that would become one of Screwball's signature traits. Hawks himself favored this type of dialogue, believing that it allowed films to closely mimic real-life conversations. It was a technique that he perfected to dizzying precision in his other famous screwball films, Bringing Up Baby from 1938 and His Girl Friday from 1940. It used to be an old axiom with actors that they didn't overlap the other man's line. They didn't spoil the other man's line. And in the first picture that I tried it, I had a good deal of trouble because I said, why don't you overlap that fellow's line? Well, they say he wouldn't like it. And I said, it's what I like. I mean, I don't give a damn whether you do. he doesn't like it or not. If I can't understand his lines, then I'll make you do it over again. And it would usually take an actor who came into the picture two days to get up to the speed of the picture. And then we wrote the dialogue so that the first few lines, first few words of a line, we didn't need. And the last few words, we didn't need. So that the overlapping made, gave an appearance, a feeling of being fast. And actually it wasn't. It was just the fact that two people. But if you and I were talking, I would butt into you, and you'd butt into me, and that's, that's the natural way of doing it. And if the audience can't follow it, then they're not paying much attention and it doesn't make any difference anyway. At first, Lombard was intimidated to play opposite someone with such a larger-than-life reputation like John Barrymore, a prolific actor of both stage and screen with peerless talent. Lombard's inexperience with sophisticated comedy initially proved to be a challenge. Hawks remembered that she was, and I quote, emoting all over the place. She was trying very hard, and it was just dreadful. Both Hawks and Barrymore remained patient with Lombard, although it soon became clear that her nerves were getting the best of her. Here's Hawks describing what happened next. From the day we started, I told Barrymore, I said, now look, I don't care what happens out on the set, I don't want any squawks from you until two o'clock in the afternoon. In the meantime, it's all on me, and I don't want you to do anything. He said, okay. And they went into their first scene. He was holding his nose behind her back, and she was pretty bad. She was really awful bad. So I told the cameraman to say that there'd be a 20-minute delay while they fixed some things. And I took Carol for a walk. 
I said, Carol, you've been working pretty hard on this, haven't you? And she said, I'm glad it shows. And I said, yes, you know your lines perfectly. How much do you get paid for doing this picture? She said, $5,000. And I said, that's pretty good. She said, I thought it was great. I said, what do you get paid for? Well, she said, acting, of course. And I said, supposing I tell you that you earned the 5000 this morning, you don't know a goddamn cent. And she stared at me. I said, what would you do if a man said such and such a thing to you? She said, I'd kick him right in the balls. Well, I said, Barrymore said that. Why didn't you kick him? And she just stared at me. And I said, what would you do if a man did such and such a thing? And she made typical Lombard gesture with her, ah, you know. I said, well, he did that. Why didn't you do that? And I said, we're going to go back in there. And if you don't kick him right where you said you were, if you don't wave your arms, if you don't do any goddamn thing you can think of, if you don't stop acting, I'm going to throw you right out of here and get another girl. And I won't give you more than a couple of hours to learn. And she said, you're serious, aren't you? And I said, I'm awful serious. Okay, she said, if that's what you want. And we went back in, and I said, we're going to make a take. And Barrymore said, wait a minute, we're not ready yet. And I said, who's running this thing? And he said, you are. His pep talk was just the motivation Lombard needed to dig deep within herself, giving the first stand-up performance in her career. Hawks later claimed that Lombard got the hang of it so quickly that in his words, she would just throw lines at Barrymore so fast that he didn't know what to do sometimes. It was so fast even I didn't understand it part of the time. In an interview with Photoplay magazine about her experience on 20th Century, Lombard explained that she learned how to act because of Hawks and Barrymore, saying, The simple truth about acting is the ability to dig down deep within your understanding of the human being you're attempting to create and living and thinking and being that character every moment the camera is turning. Following Hawks' private talk with Lombard, she and Barrymore got along famously. As Hawks describes it, Holy said it's hard to believe, but she's going to be a star. She's a cinch. She's going to be a star. And I said she will if you keep working with her, you know, and everything. He helped her and she was a star. Of her experience working with Barrymore, Lombard recalled, Don't let anyone ever tell you that John Barrymore isn't the greatest actor of his day. When production wrapped, Barrymore gifted her with an autographed photo inscribed with the message, To Carol Lombard, a grand artist and a grand person, with the affectionate good wishes of John Barrymore. 20th Century was a springboard for Lombard's career. She had won the attention and admiration of Hollywood producers and critics alike, and went on to become the undisputed queen of screwball comedy. Unfortunately, Columbia didn't have another It Happened One Night on its hands. 20th Century premiered on May 3, 1934 to glowing critical reviews. Silver Screen Magazine called Barrymore's performance brilliant, one that will go down in movie history, while Variety's Cecilia Ager praised Lombard's ease with comedy, noting that the actress finally exchanged her makeup mask for a human face. At the same time, many reviewers observed that the film might be too smart for general consumption. 
they were right. The film did poor business at the box office and performed well below initial hopes in mid-level cities like Baltimore and Philadelphia. Hawks told Joseph McBride that, quote, the public wasn't ready for seeing two stars act like comedians the way those two did. Hollywood didn't have leading men and leading women make damn fools of themselves like they did in that picture. In the nearly 90 years since the film's release, 20th Century has gained a reputation as a screwball comedy par excellence, and one that established some of the genre's most enduring tropes, like physical comedy, verbal sparring, and dizzy characters. The 20th Century presents the theatrical world as a carnivalesque madhouse bursting at the seams. The characters are just as daffy as they come. Oscar and Lily are both afflicted with an almost crippling sense of megalomania. Oscar's assistants, drunkard Owen O'Malley and long-suffering Oliver Webb, are pushovers who, despite their best efforts, cannot escape his gravitational pull. The film is also peppered with assorted supporting characters like Matthew J. Clark, who forges phony checks and adheres stickers that read, Repent for the time is at hand all over the train. Or the Ober Amigal players, who grovel mercilessly at Maestro Jaffe's feet. One must be a little insane to survive in this world. A sober, rational mind would prove to be too painful. And because each character is crazier than the next, everyone is more or less entirely superficial. In a rare moment of self-awareness, Lily tells Oscar, That's the trouble with you, Oscar. With both of us. We're not people. We're lithographs. We don't know anything about love unless it's written and rehearsed. We're only real in between curtains. Performances do not end when the footlights go dark. Acting is in the lifeblood of their existence. Everyone is always on acting out various versions of themselves, or characters, just to survive. Oscar is the undisputed king of theatricality, as is evident when he comes up with an off-the-cuff disguise as a southern gentleman in order to elude the police who are hot on his trail. Carol Lombard certainly made a name for herself as a comedian thanks to this film, but it's not hard to argue that 20th Century is all about John Barrymore. He gives what is arguably the most riotous performance ever captured on film. Barrymore chews the scenery with reckless abandon, unleashing Oscar's undisciplined outbursts to wild abandon. Take, for example, Oscar's temper tantrum when he finds out that Lily has left him for Hollywood. Lily? Lily? How could you do it? I'll go find it. I'll bring her back wherever she is. No, put me back in the bull ring. Sew me up like a picador's horse. Blind me eyes. Let life run over me. Lily. Lily! Child of Satan! 
No more, Lily Darling. Wipe her off the face of the earth. Back in What's the Rembrandt up here? Owen. Oblivion. Oblivion. Owen. Have the evening papers gone to press yet? In about an hour. Get out your pencil. Oh, Jay, you're in no mood to talk for publication. Go up and lie down for Are a while. Are you still here? Get out. I want to make a statement to the press. I have just fired Lily Garland. I've thrown her out of my theater like a dead rat. Now, take it easy, sir. Well, what are we going to do, O.J.? All the announcements are up for the opening. We'll open. Barrymore shrieks, cries, and gesticulates with the force of his whole body. After learning about Lily's betrayal, he staggers down the staircase to his theater like a soldier wounded in battle. He throws a bucket of black paint on an advertisement promoting Lily's next theatrical production. He doesn't want to see her face, or even her name, ever again. In his eyes, it's the mark of the devil. As he covers his face dramatically with his hands, he mutters, O oh, tempora, O oh, mori, a Latin phrase attributed to Cicero to denounce his political enemies who were plotting to overthrow his government. It roughly translates to, Oh, the times, of oh, the customs, or... Shame on the sage and its lost principles. Oscar likens himself to a vulnerable leader, betrayed by someone in his inner circle. Barrymore pushes himself to the limit to convey the depths of Jaffe's madness. And what makes Barrymore's performance even funnier is that all of the characters around Oscar are essentially unfazed by his hysterics. At times, though, they take the bait and indulge him, like Oliver, who sarcastically quips, Just say the word and I'll kill myself, OJ. It seems that this is one in a long line of Jaffe outbursts. Oscar's temper is, in essence, another type of performance. Lily is theatrical too. We are constantly reminded of how she's playing the part of Lily Garland, acting out her own ego to conform to Oscar's vision of who she should be. This is conveyed through repeated references to her pre-stardom name, Mildred Plotka, as well as Oscar's derogatory remarks about her working-class roots. Lombard's biographer Larry Swindell wrote the 20th century's narrative is based on seduction, with Jaffe appealing to her ego. That's undeniably true, but it also works both ways. And that's where physical comedy, and all that it represents, comes into play. The late film critic Andrew Saris once observed that screwball comedy was sex comedy without the sex, a description that reflects the moral limitations imposed upon filmmakers because of the production code. As we discussed in the last episode, certain topics like crime, violence, and sex were heavily monitored under the code. Guided by the tenet that no picture shall be produced that will lower the moral standards of those who see it, the PCA evaluated the screen representation of such topics as crime, violence, sex, and religion to ensure that the quote-unquote correct standards of life would be upheld and that the sympathy of the audience should never be thrown to the side of crime, wrongdoing, evil, or sin. The PCA's regulatory process focused extensively on dialogue, and film files are ripe with correspondence fixated on the words on the page. But PCA oversight also extended to imagery. For example, the code sex provision explicitly prohibits excessive and lustful kissing, lustful embraces, and suggestive postures and gestures. Sex could be intimated through such visual cues like ellipses or a character's body language, but only if it was essential to the plot, 
and never in such a way as to condone wanton passion or adultery. Hollywood filmmakers quickly figured out ways to navigate the code's guidelines through innuendo and symbolism. Out of artistic repression, an entirely new cinematic language was born. Ironically, too, a direct line of communication opened between filmmakers and their audiences once the latter learned Hollywood's representational shorthand. This put the PCA on constant defense to play catch-up. Like it happened one night, 20th Century is also a pre-code screwball film, and given the code's limitations, Hawks, Hecht, and MacArthur relied on verbal sparring and physical roughhousing to convey Oscar and Lily's sexually charged chemistry and, crucially, their psychic harmony. Physicality is at once both the great divider and uniter. Lily mimics Oscar's theatrics because she's been taught by him that it's the easiest way to gain his attention, love, and respect. Oscar bestows Lily with physical affection when she appeals to his most reckless inclinations. Even in private, she behaves just like him, at one point telling George, her boyfriend, All those opera pretenders, acrobats, that Italian bicycle rider I told you about, they're all lies. The only man in my life is that cavalier in their Oscar Jesse. What are you trying to tell me? I was completely loyal to him. Loyal? Of course. He watched me like a hawk. And you wanted my respect. Who cares about your respect? I am too big to be respected. Men I have known have understood that. Men you've known? Jaffy, you mean? Yes, Jaffy. He'll tell you what I am. A first-class passenger entitled to privileges. Oh, an artist. You darn tuning I am! In the film's opening scene during rehearsal, we are introduced to Lily, still as the meek lingerie model from The Sticks, Mildred Plotka. Lombard plays the scene with a conscious timidity that evokes her character's theatrical inexperience. Her movements are subtle, and she lingers in the background of many of the shots. Lily speaks in a quiet whimper, almost as if to draw as little attention to herself as possible. Oscar presides over the rehearsal, and immediately takes notice of her ungraceful acting. All right. The door is opened by the old family retainer, Uncle Remus. Already. Ting-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling. Just a moment. That is the way an ice man would enter the house. Not Mary Joe. Shyly, please. Try it again. Ting-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling. Daddy! Oh, just wait, uh, dear. Uh, you're in America now. You, you know, the Old South does not yodel. Once more, please. As the rehearsal continues, Oscar molds Lily's performance until it perfectly suits his vision. He even goes so far as to draw chalk marks on the stage floor to ensure that she hits every mark perfectly. Lily is Oscar's creation, and he, herself, professes Svengali. He builds her into what he wants, even giving her a new name that sounds more theatrical. In this scene, we get the sense that Lily is slowly losing herself to Oscar. By controlling her body through performance, Oscar exerts his influence. Hours later into the rehearsal, Lily is exhausted. Pushed to the brink, she pleads, I can't stand it! I've done it a thousand times! You can't have it me this way any longer! Amateur, on your feet. Yeah. Take that hump out of your back. 
You're not demonstrating underwear anymore. I've taken all the bullying from you. I'm going to. No man living can kick me around for eight hours until I can't see straight. I'm a human being, do you hear? A human being. Now, Miss Garland. My name is Plotkin. It's a good name, too. Just as good as Jaffe. I wanted to be an actress, but I won't crawl on my stomach for any man. You, you'll find somebody else. She's marvelous. Just as I thought. Fire, passion, everything. The gold is all there, but we must mine it. Lily bursts into tears, frustrated that she's not giving Oscar the performance that he wants. In one of the film's rare moments of tenderness, Hawks employs an over-the-shoulder close-up shot used to evoke the character's physical intimacy. Oscar cradles Lily's face in his hands. He traces the track of her tear across her cheek, following the trail of Lombard's faint scar, a relic from a nearly career-ending automobile accident seven years earlier. Paternalistically, he pinches her cheek and tells her, Look at me. Dooza had that modeling. Now we're going to teach little Mary Jo how to scream. Do you trust me, child? Yes. I'm going to find the soul that's there and release it so it'll fly, soar up to the top gallery. Oliver! Yes, sir, Jay. Go up there. I want you to listen. Now, listen, O.J. Go I've on. Got... Go on. Okay, okay. Now you're going to lift Mr. Webb out of his seat with that scream. Come on, child. Come on. I'll, I'll take all the other parts. Oscar's grasp is loving, but it also shows how he's in possession of her, even calling her my child. Just as quickly as Oscar lays on the sweetness, his voice changes back to its authoritative volume, and he snaps into producer mode. He pushes Lily until she gets her performance just right, and with a little help, she does. Oscar's play is an immediate success, and so is Lily. As a mark of his gratitude and ongoing possessiveness, he greets her in her dressing room after the performance with a gift, a shimmering gold star that he tacks onto the door. He quips that it once hung on Sarah Bernhardt's dressing room door. Lily's transformation is complete. She is Oscar's greatest production. Oscar and Lily's final confrontation contrasts with the earlier rehearsal scene. Lily has found her own identity and is unwilling to entertain Oscar's ego like she did when she was an ingenue. With her voice dripping with venom, she asks him, What do you want, Scorpion? If it makes you any happier to call me names, go ahead. Oscar, you're complete. The most horrible excuse for a human being that ever walked on two legs. You've always misunderstood me, Lily. No matter what I said, if he'd been a lover, a real man, he'd have taken you in his arms. He'd have been tender. Instead of that, he stalked out of the room like the Reverend Henry Davidson in rain. Your philosophy of love doesn't interest me, Mr. Jaffer. The slight low angle of the shot accentuates their similar statures, and we notice for the first time that they are roughly the same height. It's a subtle visual cue that reinforces their likeness, and reveals that Lily has finally mustered up enough courage to stick up for herself. She confronts him. 
You have $100 to your name. I can raise a million. Two million. Yes, and I know just how you intend to raise it. Get my name on the contract. Shake down some new angel on the strength of my reputation. Well, no, thank you. I'm proving your meal ticket. It's a lie. You've been listening to my enemies. I've been listening to Mr. Oliver Webb, who broke in here with some sob story that you were going to commit suicide unless I took pity on you. Well, go and commit it. It would be a blessing to everybody concerned. But, uh, Mr. Webb, he is no longer with me. I fight oh, him for up. stealing. I've enough of your lives. I'm offering you your last chance to become immortal. Thanks. I've decided to stay mortal with a responsible management. Who? Max Jacobs. I can't believe it. No, read the paper tomorrow, then. Why do you think I left Hollywood? Max Jacobs. He's a thief. Illiterate. He can hardly write his own name. He writes it on checks, all right. Great big checks, too. Ah, so that's what it is. Money. I jingled ten or fifteen thousand dollars in front of your nose. Your mouth would begin to water. You'd start drooling and squealing. Gimme, give gimme, give gimme, give gimme. That's right, Oscar. Now get up before I have the porter throw you off the train. You'll see who's going to be thrown off this train, traveling with a jiggle. Get off, you fake! You swindling! Stop that! You cheap little shop girl! Get off before I call the conductor! Call the conductor! Lombard uses the force of her entire body to kick up Barrymore, letting out a series of high-pitched screams that puncture her physical barrage. Oscar may have taught her how to act, but he's no longer in control of her, at least temporarily. In spite of Lily's protests, Oscar eventually tricks her into signing yet another contract by faking a fatal gunshot wound. The film's final scene is almost duplicate to the opener, bookending the power that Oscar has over her when she was just an unknown actress. Back in the same theater, Lily begins rehearsal, and once again, Oscar tries to coach her movements, telling her that she's been in Hollywood for too long, and that her time away from the stage has set her back years. Lily's fleeting autonomy momentarily disrupts the balance of power between the two protagonists. Their relationship follows an arc built upon a struggle for control. At the outset, Lily submits body and mind to him, and he builds her into a perfect replica of himself, a mini-Oscar, if you will. Gaining access to her body is integral to the pairing, as it implies a sexual conquest. She admits to George that Oscar is the only man that she's ever been with. All of Oscar's efforts are not without consequence. The climax of their struggle for power finds Lily trying to regain her identity back from him. But the film's conclusion, and Lily's new contract, resets the balance of power in Oscar's favor. With his protege back under his spell, Oscar's once again on top as the Little Napoleon of Broadway. That concludes this episode of The Screwball Story. The Screwball Story was researched, written, and recorded by me, Olympia Kiriakou. All of the resources used for this episode are listed in the show notes. If you'd like to stay up to date on future episode releases and other news, please follow me on Instagram and Twitter at The Screwball Story, or my personal account, I'm The Screwball Girl. Thank you for listening, and we'll meet again next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>